anything about an extinct ecosystem. I mean, can you directly, scientifically test the past? No, the past is gone. We do real science now, in the present. You can't directly, scientifically test the past. You have to make assumptions about the past. And what I'm going to tell you, as I've said throughout this whole conference, what we see in God's world really does agree with what we read in God's Word. But the world says, no, we know better. The world says, this is how dinosaurs came to be. This is the dinosaur family tree, if you will. And we know this is a very scientific chart. You know how we know that? It's got scientific words on it. Triassic, Jurassic, Cretaceous. And if you've got really good eyes on the far left-hand side, you'll see it's got the millions of years. So if it's got scientific words and the millions of years on it, it must be a scientific chart. So what this chart is trying to tell us is like 280 million years ago, you got this creature at the bottom, this sort of ancestral pre-dinosaur, and it's merely existing along, and all of a sudden, poof, you got this new kind of creature that pops off. And then another kind of creature pops off. And then about the time it gets to that first line, it must have had like a really bad day. Because poof, it just mutated into everything. And then over time, you get this branch that goes off to the right. So you start off with one creature, and you end up with the Ornithischian dinosaurs, the Thracian dinosaurs, the birds, you know, the pterosaurs, the crocodilians. You start off with one kind of creature and end up with all these kind of creatures. Now, if you're paying attention to this diagram, this chart here, you'll notice that the lines come in two different colors. You've got the yellow, the highlighted portion of the chart, and you've got the grayed-out portion of the chart. Can anybody tell me what the yellow lines represent, what, what the highlighted portion of this chart, what does that represent? Those are things we actually have fossils of. We've got fossils of that creature and that creature and that creature and that creature. We've got fossils of all those creatures. Now, can anybody tell me what the, what the grayed out lines mean? What does that represent? Okay. What it means is there's no information there. You'll notice there's nothing that really links all the yellow lines. And the world tries to explain that away. The extreme rarity of transitional forms in the fossil record persists as the trade secret of paleontology. The evolutionary trees that adorn our textbooks have data only at the tips and nodes of their branches. The rest is inference. However reasonable, it is not the evidence of fossils. Anybody know what inference means? It means guess. But see, it sounds really scientific when you put it that way. So but let's go back to our chart and see what we can actually determine from this chart. Let's start with the creature on the far right. When that creature reproduced, were its offspring the same kind of creature or a different kind of creature? Same. Okay, what about the one fifth on the right? When it reproduced, were its offspring the same kind of creature or a different kind of creature? Same. What about the one-third from the left? When it reproduced, were its offspring the same kind of creature or a different kind of creature? Same. So what we've got underlying this chart here is fossil evidence of fully formed creatures reproducing after his or after their kind. Now, I know I read that somewhere. Where did I read that? How about in the Word of God? When creatures reproduce, they have the same kind of creature. When dogs reproduce, they have dogs. When cows reproduce, they have cows. Amazingly, when dinosaurs reproduce, they have what? Dinosaurs. On the first day, God created earth, space, time, and light. On the second day, the atmosphere, the firmament, the expanse. 
On the third day, the dry land and plants. On the fourth day, the sun, moon, and stars. On the fifth day, the flying and sea creatures. On the sixth day, land, animals, and man. Six ordinary 24-hour days. And on that basis, we have sound biblical scientific answers about these incredible creatures we call dinosaurs. Again, when you come to the Creation Museum, you're going to see dinosaurs everywhere. But you know what the world says about answers in Genesis? Those people aren't scientific. They don't know anything about science. They don't even know anything about theology. They're playing fast and loose with the truth. You know what those rascals and answers in Genesis are doing? They're using dinosaurs to indoctrinate children. That's what they're doing. They're using dinosaurs to indoctrinate children. Now, you know what our response to that is, by the way? Amen. That's exactly what we're doing. The world uses dinosaurs to convince our kids they're nothing but rearranged pond scum. We use dinosaurs to call our children back to the authority of the Word of God. We call dinosaurs missionary lizards. And we do have a sneaky sort of underhanded way of indoctrinating kids. I'm going to go ahead and admit it just because it's only fair to say this. We do have a sneaky way of, of, of indoctrinating kids. You know what we do? We answer their question. Boy, the world hates it when we do that. But the thing is, it's a very important issue because our kids are fascinated. But the thing the world hates is our answers start with the Word of God. Yeah, well, Tommy, we're going to talk about Bible and dinosaurs. I mean, I understand that. You want to give biblical answers, but I don't know how many times I've read through my Bible. I've yet to find the word dinosaur in the Bible. Now, should that surprise any of us? Actually, it shouldn't. The word dinosaur is a new word. It didn't exist until 1841. It was coined or invented, if you will, by British scientist Sir Richard Owen. He was one of the most prominent scientists of his day in England, and he was one of the first people to systematically study the fossils of dinosaurs. As the great ships of England would bring these specimens back from all over the world, he was one of the first people to categorize and sort and try to analyze these bones, and he was totally fascinated by what he was seeing. He was the person that invented the word dinosaur. It means terrible lizard. So if you look in the 1828 dictionary, you find the words computer, locomotive, and rocket, you do not find the word dinosaur in the 1828 dictionary. Now, why is that? Because 1841 hadn't happened yet. See, this is not hard. The most commonly used English translation of the Bible is called the King James. It was completed in 1611. That's 230 years before the word dinosaur even existed. But what about the so-called modern English translations, which began in the 1885, 1880-1885 range? Read through those texts, you don't find the word dinosaur there either. Now the question you've got to ask yourself is, should you? Job 40.15, Behold now behemoth which I made with thee, he eateth grass as an ox. Lo now his strength is in his loins, his force is in the navel of his belly. He moveth his tail like a cedar, the sinews of his stones are wrapped together. His bones are as strong pieces of brass, his bones are like bars of iron. He is chief of the ways of God. Now, is that a big creature or a little creature? I mean, that's not a guinea pig, right? That's a big creature. You've got a tail like a cedar. If you're chief of the ways of God, you must be the man. You must have it going on. But, you know, I really wonder sometimes if people are really paying attention when they read through the Word of God. Because the people that wrote the study notes for the NIV Study Bible said the creature we just read about was possibly the hippopotamus 
or the elephant. Anybody here been to the zoo lately? You ever seen the backside of an elephant? That looked like a cedar to you. I mean, that, that's, a, that's a fairly unimpressive cedar, right? And like we say back home, that ain't no cedar neither. Does the hippopotamus have a tail like a cedar? See, I ain't no cedar, no way, no how. See, this doesn't work. Or maybe they just got their ends mixed up. I don't know. I tell you one thing you never, ever want to do. You never, ever want to go to the zoo with anybody that works at Answers to Genesis. You know why? See, everybody else is taking pictures of the front of the elephants. We're taking pictures of the rear. See, people think that we're strange and they won't stand next to us in line at the cafeteria. But uh, what about something like that? Or maybe that. Now, can I make the following statement? Behemoth was a dinosaur. Can I make that direct statement? Behemoth was a dinosaur. Nope, I can't. What I can say is this. There is no creature in our present understanding that fits that description better than a sauropod dinosaur. What are they doing? They're digging up a dinosaur, right? This is a dig site. They're excavating a dinosaur fossil. And the thing is, we've got fossils of lots of kinds of dinosaurs. And again, for those families who've told their kids dinosaurs aren't real, they got a huge problem. That problem is called fossil. We've got fossils of lots of dinosaurs. And I hope we find lots more. We talked about this last night. This is a fish fossil. Had this fish become a fossil? Well, it got buried very rapidly say, from the sediment of the flood. But the thing is, we need to step back and really try to understand what we can learn from fossils. Now, when you dig up a fossil, have you dug up the past or the present? All right, we'll do it this way. It's Monday night, I'm easy. How many people say you've dug up the present? Heck, hands down. How many people say you've dug up the past? Hands down. How many people didn't vote? Hands down. How many people in this room exist in the present? Hey, that's about half. You know, for a Monday night, that's not bad. I was in California a couple of months ago. It was 5% tops. They didn't know if they were there or not. You know, so I, I'm fairly impressed. On a Monday night, you get, you get 50% of people that actually exist in the present. You're doing pretty well. When you dig up a fossil, you've dug up the present. You cannot dig up the past. The past is what? It's past. It's gone. You can only dig up, you can only analyze or dig up things or hold things or examine things in the present. So now that we've established that at least half the people in this room do in fact exist in the present, what we're going to do is we're going to say that you just dug this up. Now, what I want you to tell me is this, what you know about this. I don't want to know what you think, not what you theorize, not what might be, not what could be. I want you to tell me what you know about that. 
You can do better than that. Yeah. But the thing is that that's, that's I mean, now, we're, we're I'm, I'm, I'm fine. Tell me what you know about this fossil. Yeah. But you can say that about any fossil. What you know about this? It's a fish. Nope. It's dead. It's dead. That's what you know. It's a fish and it's dead. That's really the extent of what you know. I mean, what color was this fish before it got dead? You don't know. Um, what did this fish eat? And fish food's not an acceptable answer, by the way. What did this thing eat? Anybody? You don't know. Now, to be fair, we do have some specimens, you know, in the fossil record that when we, you know, dug them up or found them, that they've got parts of other creatures in their tummy, things like that. So in some cases, we do know at least what part of the diet was. But in this case, you don't know. Is this a smart fish or a dumb fish? Some people say it's a dumb fish or it wouldn't be a fossil. I mean, I get that, but there's enough sediment at the time of the flood, even the smart creatures would get buried rapidly. And that question is of particular importance to those of us who've actually watched the movie Jurassic Park. Because if you read about your reports about how they made the movie Jurassic Park, the thing you're going to hear most commonly is those people will tell you that the star of the movie, or at least the star dinosaur of the movie, was T-Rex. And actually, I don't agree with that. To me, there's another dinosaur in the movie Jurassic Park that's much more central to the actual plot of the movie. Anybody know which one I'm talking about? The raptor. Now, how was the raptor portrayed in the movie? Smart intelligence, a cunning hunter. It hunted in packs. I don't know if you remember the scene where the big game hunter was going out and trying to track him down, and the two raptors, you know, distracted him. The other one jumped out of the bush and ate him, which was a cool scene. It wasn't as cool as the lawyer in the outhouse, but it was still really cool. You know, it was a cunning hunter. It hunted in packs. Do fossils hunt in packs? No, what do fossils do? They lay there, and you dust them once a month. How do you know these things hunt in packs? Question, where did this fish die? What physical location on the surface of the earth did this fish die? No, actually it it died in the sediment. But what point on the surface of the earth did it die? Answer, you don't know. You know where it was deposited. There are places around the world, we call them fossil graveyards, and they're just acres and acres and acres and acres and just like billions and billions of fossils. I mean, all those creatures get together and commit suicide? I mean, how'd that work? No, they got trapped in a sediment flow, and they were washed to an area, and they were deposited there. You know where it ended up. You don't know where it died. How old is this fossil? Do fossils come with labels, hi, I'm 65 million years old? No, you have to separate what you know versus what you assume. Which is why when, a lot, when people come to the Creation Museum, when they actually go through the walk through the museum itself, they're really surprised that the first thing they come to is not the Garden of Eden. The first thing they come to is the dig site. This is one of my favorite exhibits in our museum. What this is, it's a recreation of a dig site. You've got two scientists here. One's a creationist, one's an evolutionist. And on the screens behind this dinosaur dig, they're going to interpret this fossil evidence for you.
I grew up fascinated by dinosaurs, watching movies, collecting models, reading all about them. Dinosaurs were big. They were magnificent. They were awesome. I was taught that dinosaurs once ruled the world, but that millions of years ago, they disappeared from the Earth. Everything I believed about the age of the Earth, the cycles of life and death, the evolution of humankind began dinosaurs. And then I learned that the Bible presented a very different history. Kim here is my colleague, fellow paleontologist. We've been friends since college. Today we study the same fossils, we use the same techniques, but that doesn't mean we agree on what happened here. We do interpret our findings differently. You see, fossils don't come with tags on them, telling us how old they are, where they lived, what they ate, or even how they died. We have to figure that out from the clues that we find. We never have enough clues. So, our starting points usually lead us to different conclusions. Here's how I see it. I think this dinosaur died over 100 million years ago. It dried out in the sun for a long time. Um, and later, I think this specimen was uh, covered by river sediment, uh, which was caused by a local flood. She's been lying here all this time to re-dug her up. Where Kim sees millions of years, I see evidence of a different history. I believe this animal died in a flood, but it wasn't a local flood. It was a massive flood that covered the earth, Noah's flood, when God judged the world. The carcass was buried suddenly before it could be eaten or decomposed, buried in a layer of sediment that stretches across the entire continent. Since the flood, according to the Bible, was about 4,300 years ago, that's how old I believe this fossil to be. We come to different conclusions because of our different starting points. I start with the Bible, my colleague does not. We all have the same facts. We merely interpret the facts differently because of our different starting points. And the reason that this is the first exhibit you're going to come to at the Creation Museum is because right off the bat, people need to understand the basis of how we interpret things. Because you'll notice these two scientists you know, give you completely different interpretations. They're looking at the same fossil. How can that be? Well, their conclusion is not based on the evidence. It's based on their starting point. You see, this is really not a battle of evidence. It's not about finches and fossils and rock layers. It's about how you interpret the finches, the fossils, and the rock layers. Now, this is who? It's T-Rex. Look at those teeth. What does T-Rex eat? Now, according to the movie, we know at least four things. A 10,000-volt fence, a Jeep, an outhouse, and a lawyer. All in all, a very lovable guy. But, you know, what does T-Rex eat? Answer, anything it wants, right? And that's the way we sort of think about dinosaurs, you know, fearsome creatures that ate Tokyo, you know, the science fiction movies. But, you know, lots of dinosaurs weren't fearsome meteors. Lots of dinosaurs were plant eaters. But here's a Jurassic calendar. Kill something and eat it, kill something and eat it, kill something and eat it. And see, that's the way we think about dinosaurs. But in the beginning, T-Rex, this most vicious of dinosaurs, this most vicious killer, ate what? Plants. 
and every beast of the earth, and every fowl of the air, and everything that creepeth upon the earth wherein there is life, I've given every green herb for me. It was so. In the beginning, T-Rex, this most vicious of dinosaurs, ate plants. I mean, that just takes the steam right out of T-Rex, doesn't it? I mean, how dull is that? A vicious plant eater. I mean, that, there's, just, there's just no pizzazz in that at all. I mean, look at that vicious killer. Anybody know what that is? It's a panda. What do pandas kill? Bamboo. Look at those teeth. It's a vicious bamboo killer. What do fruit bats attack and kill? Fruit. It's a fruit killer. Look at those teeth. How vicious is that creature? It's a fruit killer. Look at the teeth on this thing. I mean, that's obviously a vicious killer, right? It viciously kills nuts, fruits, and vegetation. There are lions and tigers in our world today that are vegetarian. In one of my other presentations, I have a video of alligators eating an, an alligator eating kumquats. Bears, when they come out of hibernation, you know, long teeth and claws will do very nicely eating plants you disturb them they'll be happy to eat you too but that's not the best example the best example is the great white shark the great white shark has been called nature's perfect killing machine i'm going to show you a video about nature's perfect killing machine my crew throws in the bait to begin the test first tuna squid and kelp okay the three baits are in we've already seen how hard they hit the tuna in australia and if scent is a factor at all the tuna or squid should go first Whoa! she just took a small bite out of the kelp incredible she's coming back around for a second pass It went for the kelp again. The shark ignored the tuna and the squid and took the kelp. So this is what they're doing. They're testing baits for the great white shark. They take a hook and they put some tuna on it. They throw that out in the water. They take another hook and they put some squid on it. They throw that out in the water. They take another hook and they put a big ball of kelp, just a big wad of seaweed on it. They throw that out in the water. Then they put that rocket scientist with the camera in the basket to film everything. And folks, I'm just going to tell you right off the bat, I never want to be unemployed enough that I answer the following ad. Idiot with video camera to get in basket to film Great White Shark. I don't ever want to be that unemployed. But nonetheless, they did find somebody to do that. And on multiple passes, nature's perfect killing machine ate what? Plants. On multiple passes, one of the most vicious killers on earth ate plants first. Now, I did have one young man point out to me a couple of months ago that perhaps the great white shark was eating his salad before he ate the diver, but I don't have the rest of the clip, so I won't comment further.
Alan, this species of veriformin's been extinct since the Cretaceous period. I mean, this thing is a hunt this thing. Why? It's a dinosaur. Uh-huh. It's a dinosaur. The guy's a rocket scientist, and he's got to figure it out. But to be fair, if I get up tomorrow morning and I see something eating the leaves off the tops of the trees, you know, I'm going to get my camera out because I want my picture in the paper. But if you remember in the movie, this guy is just basically overcome by a transport of emotion. I mean, he, just, he looks off into this little valley area, and he sees these dinosaurs moving around, and he makes the comment, look how they travel in herds just like we thought. Uh, do fossils travel in herds? No, fossils just lay there. But anyway, he just can't believe what he's seeing. People are actually seeing dinosaurs. He just can't wrap his mind around this. A human being's actually seeing a dinosaur. Now, should he really be shocked by that? I don't know what that is. It's called a pictograph. There are places around the world you'll find these drawings or carvings they are either on, on cliff walls or in caves, and they're called pictographs or petroglyphs, depending on whether they're drawn, painted, or carved. And you can actually go to the Internet. There are several sites devoted to pictographs and petroglyphs, and they have all sorts of images you know, from these places all over the world, and they're really fascinating. But sometimes you see some really interesting-looking images, things like that, or like that. And that's sort of an enhanced view of it. Or like that. What does that look like? Like a dinosaur. I can think of one creature alive today that sort of kind of looks like that. Kangaroo. But when you look at that, you don't think kangaroo, do you? You think dinosaur. Now, I know that's kind of hard to see, so that's after Photoshop. I mean, that's a puppy dog, right? I mean, is that a guinea pig? I mean, what does that look like? What does that look like? What does that look like? Well, you know what the scientists say? Those things aren't dinosaurs. Those things can't be dinosaurs. At the same time, saying other things on these cave walls or on these cliff walls are real. You know, the people or the cattle or the streams or whatever. Other things are real, but these things that look like dinosaurs, they're not real. Because they know that dinosaurs died out 65 million years ago. That's what they say they know which I find fascinating because everything else in, in these areas, on, on, in these walls or in, in, in a particular area, well, this is supposed to be real, this is supposed to be real, but the thing that looks like dinosaurs aren't real. They say that the dinosaur images are artwork or imagination. Or I've, I read one report uh, when they were examining one of these areas, they said the things, the things that look like dinosaurs were mythical creatures of worship. But the thing is, if everything else is real, why aren't the things that look like dinosaurs real? Because... How did the pictographs and petroglyphs get there? How did those things actually get in place? People put them there, right? Either people drew or carved these things, or it's the most amazing example of erosion in the world. See, the scientists need to be looking at these things going, whoa, wait a minute, we got, a, we got evidence that people and dinosaurs walked the earth together. But they say, no, dinosaurs died out millions of years ago. 
So the question I have for you is this. Are they saying that because of the evidence or in spite of it? I say it's in spite of it. Direction changes just like a flock of birds evading a predator. They're uh, they're flocking this way. I want to go now. Look how it eats. Please. Bet you never look at birds the same way again. Bet you never look at birds the same way again. I reckon not, because that little girl hadn't seen a bird yet. Now the dinosaur in this clip, the initial one was um, it's called a Gallimimus. Now listen to what the guy said. Look how it changes directions, just like a flock of birds evading a predator. They're flocking this way. Bet you never look at birds the same way again. You know what I'm going to tell you? That dialogue was not an accident. Dinosaurs went extinct millions of years ago, or did they? No, birds are essentially modern short-tailed dinosaurs. You know what the teaching, you know what the teaching thread of the movie Jurassic Park was you know what they were trying to teach you throughout the entire movie Jurassic Park? They were trying to teach you that dinosaurs turned into birds. Dinosaurs turned into birds. That's what they were trying to teach you. Dinosaurs turned into birds. Now, I've had a lot of people that watch the movie to tell me, I just don't think that's what they were trying to teach at all. Because, you know, I saw the movie two or three times, and I really didn't get that idea. Tommy, I think you're really stretching the point when you make statements like that. I just didn't get that flavor at all. I don't think that's what they were trying to teach. Well, actually, if you, if you did what I did and you bought the collector's edition DVD of the movie, on the collector's edition DVD of the movie Jurassic Park, there's a documentary. It's about how they made the movie. And if you watch that documentary, you're going to see this. And, you know, he wanted them portrayed as animals. So we spent a great deal of time, you know, working with the paleontologists and um, doing a lot of field work. To help portray scientifically accurate behavior, filmmakers enlisted the help of paleontologist Jack Horner, one of the world's leading dinosaur experts. Horner's research has been instrumental in changing our view of dinosaurs. He contends that birds, not reptiles, represent their closest living link. For Jurassic's design team, maintaining scientific accuracy would mean breaking the reptilian stereotypes associated with dinosaurs. The whole idea is to get people to look at dinosaurs more like birds than as reptiles. And one of the scenes, some of the uh, model makers had made a tongue come out, like a lizard or a snake. The guy came up with this routine for the raptors, where they they were you know genetic you know mutations to a degree. So I thought you know we'll have the the raptor stick out his tongue. And Horner saw the animatics of that, and so, you know, just came down on us like a ton of bricks and said, "Who stupid idea was that?" Well, <laughs> mine, sir. And he said, "You, no, they could never do that." We know that they didn't do that. So, had that been left in the scene, all the work into making these things bird-like would have been gone. All the work into making these things bird-like would have been gone. In order to maintain scientific accuracy, we need to break the reptilian stereotype associated with dinosaurs. Well, they're classified as reptiles. But this whole idea that dinosaurs turn to birds is a very common idea, very common concept among paleontologists. It is by no means consensus. I've talked to several secular paleontologists in the last few years who say they don't buy this idea at all. But if you watch the National Geographic Channel or Animal Planet or Read Scientific American or the popular sort of you know, lay scientific journals, what you're going to hear is dinosaurs turn to birds, dinosaurs turn to birds. 
And to be fair, if you really think about it, if I was going to pick a creature that was going to turn into a bird, I'd probably pick a dinosaur, wouldn't you? I mean, they're so bird-like to begin with. You only a couple of simple changes in a dinosaur, and you've got a bird. Well, first of all, you've got to change the metabolic system because, you know, living reptiles are cold-blooded and living birds are warm-blooded. Now, I know there's an ongoing debate among paleontologists about whether dinosaurs were warm or cold-blooded, but in the last year or so, I've talked to one secular paleontologist who said dinosaurs were warm-blooded, and most paleontologists agree with me. At another institution, I talked to a different paleontologist who said dinosaurs were cold-blooded, and most paleontologists agree with me. Well, a few months ago, a paper came out that suggested dinosaurs may not be warm or cold-blooded. They may be lukewarm. Folks, you cannot make this stuff up. But nonetheless, you know, living reptiles are cold-blooded, living birds are warm-blooded, so you're going to have to change the metabolic system in some fashion. The other thing you've got to do is change the respiratory system because the respiratory system of a reptile and the respiratory system of a bird are distinctly different. And evolving a respiratory system is not an easy task. It's very tricky to do. So let's just say you're 